Well, good morning again. It is certainly a, a joy to be together. It's a joy to gather uh, each Sunday to worship together in song, to worship together in, in prayer and, and the word. And I hope it's a joy uh, for you to gather. We are now in the third week in this Advent series um, of six songs of the Messiah. We've considered Jesus as a king coming to claim his bride from Psalm 45. Not only is he a king, but we've seen that he is a righteous king, as we considered Psalm 97 last week. And this morning we'll add another layer to that identity of the coming Messiah as we consider Jesus as the ascended king and the appointed priest from Psalm 110. If I were to ask you what passages of Scripture come to mind uh, that are particularly significant in the storyline of Scripture or maybe especially helpful in tying together themes of Scripture or maybe just calls you to stand in awe of who God is uh, as he's revealed in Jesus, I would imagine that a, a range of passages would come to mind. I would think that there's probably some overlap in your responses. And I'm not going to have you call out your answers this morning. I'm just simply going to give you one of mine. And as you may have guessed, it's our psalm this morning, uh, Psalm 110. This psalm is the most frequently quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It touches on themes ranging from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Uh, And as it reveals God's redemptive plan, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, Martin Luther said about this psalm, this beautiful psalm is the very core and quintessence of the whole scripture. So in light of the weight of this passage, um, I am humbled. I've I've felt that over the past few weeks, the, the significance and importance of this passage in seeing Jesus, seeing God's plan unfold. And yet I'm excited. I'm excited to share Uh, from the word this morning, and my prayer over these past few weeks has been that in our time together, we would just see the beauty of Jesus, that our hope would be strengthened, that we would see the beauty of Jesus as our king and recognize the necessity of his priesthood. In Jesus, we have a hope that is a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. So with that in mind, Let's turn now to Psalm 110. I'll read that for us, and then I'm going to briefly pray again. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. 
Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let me pray for us again as we get started. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You are faithful. And you are faithful to reveal uh, who you are through your Son in your word. And so I pray that you would do just that this morning. Would you give us eyes to see who you are in the person and work of your Son, Jesus, uh, through this psalm? We thank you and we give you praise. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, this psalm starts in the same way as, as many other psalms do, a psalm of David. Right? It's, it's easy to skip right past that introduction. I, I would imagine we often do that as we read the Psalms. Great, another Psalm of David, a Psalm of Asaph. Uh, it's easy to just look right past that. But I would, ar- I would argue in this Psalm in particular that, that more hangs on this title or this introduction than perhaps in any other Psalm. And maybe you would have others that come to mind and, and we could possibly debate that. But my point is that the author of this Psalm is crucial to understanding uh, and interpreting Uh, the psalm itself. So look at verse 1. It it says, the Lord says to my Lord. And so you'll notice that Lord appears twice in those first five words. And let me remind you, in your scripture, your copy of the scriptures, if you're looking on phone or in in your Bible, you'll see a difference. The first one is L-O-R-D in all capital letters, right? And that's a reference by the translators to the covenant God as he revealed himself in Exodus 3, um, refers to his, his revelation of I am, Yahweh. And the second one, uh, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, uh, could certainly refer to God, but could also be a reference to a master or a ruler or one's uh, superior. So we see it's a psalm of David, and he says, the Lord says to my Lord. So do, do you see the issue? David is king. He's the highest authority, and he's calling someone else his Lord. Who is this one that he refers to as my Lord? I think in order to answer this, it'll be helpful to remember God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, where Yahweh promises to raise up an offspring from David, to sit on his throne and establish his kingdom forever. David is rightly anticipating one from his line who would be his son, but not just his son, would be greater than him, would sit on his throne forever. And we see in the New Testament, um, Jesus used this as well as the apostles. Acts 2, 34 through 36 states, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. As I mentioned, Jesus also uses this psalm uh, in Matthew 22 to confound the Pharisees as he presents this very issue, the very question that we're dealing with here. In verses 41 through 46 of Matthew 22, state, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. I think it becomes clear from these passages that the promised Messiah is in fact Jesus and is in fact David's son, but he's not merely the son of David. He is the very son of God. And so in this first line of this psalm, we see that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. We also see that Jesus is God, and it highlights the necessity of the incarnation. The the eternal son of God taking on flesh and being born as a baby. And that's exactly what we celebrate uh, this season. Uh, And as we consider the coming Messiah, that's what we celebrate over these six weeks. And Paul summarizes this thought in Romans 1, verses 3 and 4, when he states, Concerning his son, Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so in our time together this morning, I want to see in this psalm, well, I have seen, I want you to see uh, that this psalm shows us that Jesus Christ is the ascended king and the appointed priest with the power to rule and redeem, and who brings about the destruction of his enemies and the deliverance of his people. And that's a long sentence, and as you can see, I was on a bit of a, an alliteration roll. Uh, so let me say that one more time. Jesus Christ is the ascended king and the appointed priest with the power to rule and redeem, and who brings about the destruction of his enemies and the deliverance of his people. As we work through this psalm and before we dig into the statement, I want to start by providing a brief overview uh, or a flyby of the psalm as I think that will be helpful in seeing the truth about Jesus. I think that David constructs this psalm as a chiasm or in a chiastic structure. And if you're not familiar with that, it's, it's a literary structure or a device that is used to help the reader see the main point, right? And so if you think about this psalm, there's uh, seven verses. So in this case, verses 1 and 7 would correspond. Verses 2 and 6 would correspond. 3 and 5 would correspond, bring us to the the central theme or central argument in verse 4. And so if we just kind of walk that out a little bit, in this psalm, Let's start with this central verse and we'll kind of work out. Again, just giving a brief overview and then we'll dig back into that, that statement, that mouthful that I uh, gave earlier. Um, so verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I think that's the, the central argument, central theme in this psalm that Jesus is in fact the eternal priest king. And again, we're, we're going to come back and unpack that a bit. But for now, just see and know that Jesus is the eternal priest king. And then if you move out on either side of that one verse, so verse 3 and 5, you'll notice that in each of those there's a reference to a day, a specific day. right? And so verse 3, you see a day of your power. And in that, the preparation of that day. Verse 5 is the day of his wrath. And the the execution of that day. Moving out one more in verses two and six. 
Verse 2 highlights the authority of Jesus to rule. And then verse 6 will emphasize and highlight the, the carrying out or the execution of that rule. And then lastly, uh, if we look at verses 1 and 7, as they correspond, verse 1, we see the installment or the inauguration of Jesus as king. And verse 7, we see the triumph or the victory of King Jesus. So again, as we, as we work through the psalm, I think that's helpful. It was helpful for me to kind of see big picture and then we'll narrow down a little bit um, on some of those ideas. So let's go back to the statement I said earlier and we'll unpack the first half. Jesus is the ascended king with power to rule and will bring about the destruction of his enemies. Verse one provides a glimpse of the ascended Jesus returning to heaven in a triumphal procession as he has secured the salvation of his people and inaugurates his supreme rule over all things. His sacrifice is accepted and complete. As Yahweh says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And to be at the right hand is to be at the highest place of honor. It's the highest place of authority. And so right here in the beginning of the psalm, Jesus is installed as the promised king from David's line. And David recognizes that the reign of Jesus is going to be different and far superior. Uh, to all previous kings, to his own kingship. Jesus will be king of kings and lord of lords. His kingdom will be one in which perfect justice is carried out. His kingdom will be one where all enemies are subjected to him. His reign will not be confined to a single nation, but he will reign over all. He is not confined and constricted to a single nation, but over all things he will reign. And Paul highlights this very truth in his letter to the Philippians. When he says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so there is much comfort to be found in that one word until, verse one, right? Until I make your enemies your footstool. Meaning it's not a matter of if, but it's a foregone conclusion. His enemies will be defeated and subjected to him. All of them. All of his enemies will be defeated and subjected to him. They will be made his footstool. The image here is of a victorious king, literally with his foot on the neck of the defeated nation, the defeated king. You see that in Joshua 10. And time uh, does not allow me to un- unpack this in much more detail, but I, I do believe that this image is intended to bring, the mind, bring to mind the promise from Genesis 3.15, where the offspring of the woman Jesus will bruise the head of the serpent. The defeat of Satan at the cross guarantees that all future enemies will be defeated. And brothers and sisters, that, that is cause for rejoicing. So if you miss that, the, the defeat of Satan at the cross guarantees that all future enemies will be defeated. Rejoice in that truth. Rejoice in that assurance this morning. And now as we continue moving on, we move to verses 2 and 3. We see David rightly praising this exalted king. The king is given power to rule as he is sent forth from Zion, from the city of Yahweh's presence, with the mighty scepter. And here the scepter is a symbol of of royal authority. And we know from Genesis 49 
Uh, verse 10, that it's promised that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, which has significance here as we remember that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah and the line of David. And so as his rule goes forward, we see his people willingly joining him for battle in verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And there are a variety of interpretations to this verse. And specifically, that last phrase, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. But I believe David is rightly rejoicing in the innumerable offspring and ever-increasing followers of this king who are as widespread over the earth as the dew drops in the morning. Right? You, you get that image of, of offspring from the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth. So we see that in Jesus there will be a people from every tribe, nation, tongue. Right? So I think that's the point that David's getting at is that the innumerable offspring will be widespread just as the dew covers the earth. And we see a similar picture in Revelation 19, verses 14 through 16. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This morning our king is worthy of our service and we should offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to him. So we've seen Jesus as the ascended king with the power to rule. Primarily, again, in verses 2 and 3. And as we come to verses 5 and 7, or 5 through 7, again, we'll, we'll come back to 4 and, and unpack that a bit more and, and work through that. But as we come to verses 5 and 7, we see the final destruction of his enemies. Uh, the outworking and fulfillment of all his enemies being made a footstool. None will be spared. All will come under the righteous judgment of Jesus. And just as his rule is not contained geographically, so too his wrath will be poured out over the wide earth. Listen to these words from Psalm 2. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the, er ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That day is coming. And so this morning, one question we need to consider is just, are you ready? Are you ready for that day? These verses provide a sobering and terrifying reality for all those who stand in opposition to our king. But maybe you've heard me say that, or you're hearing me now and thinking, well, I'm a pretty good person, right? I, I wouldn't consider myself an enemy of Jesus. And at this point, I want to be very clear if that is you this morning. And you are not submitting your life to the rule of this king. You are, in fact, an enemy and will rightly receive his coming judgment on the day of his wrath. Now, hear what I'm saying. I, I'm not asking you 
to make him Lord. I'm not asking you to make him Lord. He is Lord. He is King. I'm urging you to joyfully bow the knee in submission to him. I am urging you that today, while you hear from his word, do not reject him again. The coming judgment of a righteous king is not something our society encourages you to think about. I want you to think about it this morning. I want you to think about the coming judgment. This psalm would have us think about the coming judgment. So are you ready? Are you prepared for the judgment that's to come? And following the destruction of all of Jesus' enemies, uh, we come to verse 7. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. And again, another challenging verse as far as interpretation, a wide range of views. But I think the idea and what we're intended to see here is, is victory, is victory of Jesus. Triumph of the king. As he finishes battle, he finishes the pursuit of his enemies. He is refreshed with water from the brook and lifts his head in victory over all his enemies. Jesus is the ascended king with the power to rule and will destroy his enemies. So now let's come back to verse 4. And if you remember, I argued that this is the central verse in that chiastic structure of the psalm. So look there with me at verse 4. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And here we find the second word or oracle from Yahweh in this psalm. We see the first one in verse 1, right where Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And here in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Here's the word, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this brings us to our second point. Jesus is an appointed priest with the power to redeem and will deliver his people. In order to see this, we'll start with uh, the identification of this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. And then after that, I'll offer a few additional comments, uh, hopefully bringing some clarification. And maybe at this point it would be helpful um, before moving any further as we consider Jesus as priest. If I just remind you of the function or the role of a priest. The priest was one who was according to uh, Hebrews 5.1 and 7.25, several functions of the priest. Um, four that I saw there, the priest is selected by God, represents a particular people before God, offers sacrifices to God, and then intercedes for those same people. I think it'll be helpful to consider that as we, as we see how Jesus is our appointed priest. And in considering the, the functions of the priest, they bring us to the, uh, our very need for a priest. Right? Why we need a priest. Why do we need a representative before God? And I think this psalm would show us, and, and Hebrews as well, because we are by nature enemies of the king. We've rejected his rule. Therefore, we, unable, we are unable to approach God without a mediator because of our sin. Our rejection of the king is sin at its, at its root. 
So keep that in mind as, as we think through Jesus, the Messiah, being both priest and king. <clears throat> and to us, that combination of both offices, priest and king, uh, may not seem that significant, may not seem uh, that out of the ordinary, but it was, it was forbidden in Old Testament law. Furthermore, kings came from the tribe of Judah, specifically the line of David. Priests came from the tribe of Levi, specifically the line of Aaron. And so for the Jewish reader, uh, to see the Messiah as both priest and king would have been stunning. Uh, this separation of offices helped to ensure against the abuse of power. Uh, similar, and, and I'm hesitant to, to use our government as an illustration, but similar in the way that our government is intended to, to be a checks and balances uh, this separation of offices served in a similar capacity. Um, and you see an example of, of an abuse of that in Second Chronicles 26, where King Uzziah attempted to fill the role of priest. He attempted to, to offer incense to the Lord, and the Lord struck him with leprosy for the rest of his life. So it's a serious, it's a serious issue, and it matters that David describes Jesus as both king and priest. So the question for us, as we come to this, is how is it so then? How is it that Jesus is in fact our king and priest, two offices being fulfilled in our Messiah, in one person? <clears throat> Enter Melchizedek. And that's as abruptly as he just came into the sermon, that's pretty much how we see him enter the storyline of Scripture in Genesis 14, uh, where he shows up seemingly out of nowhere. And I think it might be advantageous to, to turn there so you can see. Um, he is mentioned in three verses, shows up. There's no mention of him prior to that, shows up. Uh, no mention of him after that until we come to, to this psalm in 110. Um, so Genesis 14, and let me read verses 18 through 20. So Genesis 14, 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high, and he was blessed, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So this is right in the middle of a story uh, about Abraham's uh, successful rescue of his nephew Lot from a group of four kings, and he runs into this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. We see Melchizedek bless Abraham, and we see Abraham uh, offer tithes to him. And uh, as I mentioned, he, he doesn't show up again. He, he, he disappears and doesn't show up again in Scripture until Psalm 110. I think we begin to see from this account and the description of Melchizedek, why he was a fitting pointer to the one to come, namely Jesus. He too was a priest king. We see that, right? King of Salem, but he's also a priest of God Most High. The writer to Hebrews develops this argument and reasoning about why Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and therefore how and why his priesthood is superior to that of the Levitical priesthood. So let's turn back now to Hebrews 7. In our remaining time, I'm, I'm going to be 
back and forth in, in throughout Hebrews. Um, so you may just want to keep your spot there. And I would also like to just take this minute to encourage you, read through the book of Hebrews uh, this week. I think it would be time well spent. I think you'd be well served. Um, and read it alongside of this psalm. It's, it's very similar in the themes. Uh, has a similar structure in that the, the early chapters focus on the, the superiority of Christ as king. And the later chapters deal with Christ as priest. So I would encourage you, read through Hebrews. Uh, it could be made, that you know, an argument could be made um, that this is a sermon preached expositing Psalm 110. So I, I would love to read much more than we're going to be able to this morning. Um, but I would encourage you this week just to read through Hebrews. <clears throat> Let's look at Hebrews 7 as we consider again Melchizedek 7, 1 through 4. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to, to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. What we see from the Genesis account and from these uh, few verses of Hebrews is that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. I mentioned he's a pointer forward to Christ. He's a pointer to the fulfillment of the messianic priest king. He is a king of righteousness and of peace by virtue of the meaning of his name and the name of the city over which he ruled, Salem. Uh, we also see that he's a priest to the Most High God. We see that he's without genealogy, without a record of his birth or, or death, uh, which is not symbolizing or not showing that he was without parents or that he didn't die, but rather serving as a symbol to the uh, eternality or forever aspect of Jesus' priesthood. We also see his superiority as he is the one who blesses Abraham. And then Abraham, and by extension his descendant Levi, paid him tithes. So a priest king does have precedent in scripture prior to the Levitical priesthood. And being a priest after the order of Melchizedek is in fact superior to the Levitical priesthood. You can see in verse, uh, I believe it's 7, of chapter 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior, inferior is blessed by the superior. So you see the superior there being Melchizedek is blessing the inferior Abraham. And again, by descendant, his great-grandson Levi in the Levitical priesthood. So we've briefly seen how Jesus can fill both offices as priest and king. And now let's look back at verse 4 where Yahweh appoints him as priest as he declares with an oath, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, the writer of Hebrews is, is helpful here and expounds upon his appointment uh, primarily in chapters 5 and 7. And again, I would love to read both of those chapters, uh, but, but let me just summarize the point of that. Jesus did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was uh, appointed as a priest by Yahweh 
just as Old Testament priests were, yet his appointment comes through his divine sonship and perfect obedience as a man. His appointment comes through his suffering. His appointment is not based on his ancestry, but on the basis of an indestructible life. Jesus is not simply another priest from the lineage of Levi, but he, was a, he has a heavenly lineage that equips him for service in a heavenly temple. And therefore, his priestly ministry is one that continues forever. As Hebrews 7, 23 through 25 states, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And as our appointed priest, he has the power to redeem his people. This is seen in the very next verses of Hebrews 7, in verses 26 through 28. So if you're still there in chapter 7, drop down, look at verses 26 through 28. <clears throat> Speaking of, of the Lord's power, of Jesus' power uh, to redeem his people. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and, those, and then, those, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is not merely another priest offering a sacrifice on behalf of his people. He is the very sacrifice. His perfect life enabled him to offer a once-for-all-time sacrifice to ensure the redemption of his people so that those who were once enemies of the king now joyfully submit to him. As pastor and theologian Joel Beakey puts it, the sacrifice of Christ the priest paid the price of the victory achieved by Christ the king. In other words, the work of Jesus as priest both on the cross and the continual intercession, are necessary to his exaltation as king. And to demonstrate the truth, and in contrast to the Levitical priests who stand daily because their work is never finished, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father in his triumphant ascension back to heaven, showing that the price was paid. So he's exalted, and he sits down as the eternal priest king. Jesus is our appointed priest with the power to redeem and his work now as our priest ensures the delivery of his people. If you're still in Hebrews 7 again, look, we've already read it, but look again at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The work of Christ as priest and through his intercession ensure that his people will not fall away, but that they will persevere. And they will come through every trial. Just consider the encouragement you receive when uh, you may be battling a, a specific sin, struggling to trust, 
doubting the goodness, uh, struggling in your faith, and you receive a text message or a call that a brother or sister is, is praying for you. Consider the encouragement that that brings you, right? Knowing that they're praying for me. Or they, maybe they share the truth of a verse. As much encouragement as that brings, just consider the, the difference and how their prayers pale in comparison to the prayers from the perfect Son of God. The perfect Son of God is praying for us. He's interceding. He always lives to make intercession. Robert Murray McShane says, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Christian, take comfort in that today. Take comfort that because Jesus is our priest, we have the forgiveness of sin, the cleansing of the conscience. We have peace with God. We have assurance of salvation. We have a secured gift of eternal life. And because that is yours in Christ, hold fast to the hope. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And let me conclude with the words of a song that we're about to sing. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time in your word. Lord, I pray that you would use it to accomplish your purposes. I pray that the words that were spoken, that were faithful to your word, would be used for your intended purposes. Lord, that you would use it to encourage us, that you would use it to to bring about conviction of sin. And Lord, if it would be your will, that you would use it to draw your people to yourself, that you would use it to open blind eyes, to give hearing to deaf ears. Lord, use your word. We thank you for it. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.